It's easy to assume, in a world of rapid change, that the differences between the generations are seismic. But what if that which unites us is greater than that which divides us? How can families nurture their differences, strive towards harmony, and strengthen their legacy? My name is Clara Bertrand, your host for Founding Conversation. In this episode, we have the pleasure of meeting two remarkable guests. Dr. Eliza Philby, an academic writer and public speaker specializing in contemporary values and generational intelligence. And Honora de Catillon, the head of family advisory at Big Day Wealth Management. Joining us as the host is Hubertus Copes, the head of communication and branding at the Big Day Group. Welcome to both of you. Great to be here. Thank you. So before we get into the family context, Eliza, maybe you could walk us through the four generations from baby boomers to Gen Z who are interacting with each other today. So first up, we have the baby boomers. And to a certain extent, that's those born from the sort of early 1940s right through to the mid 1960s. It's not, there's no specific cutoff beginning point. They tend to vary, but essentially that was that generation that was born in the aftermath of the Second World War was a baby boom that didn't just kind of see through the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, but really continued through the, to the mid 1960s. And they have yielded so much economic, political and corporate power as a result because there's so many of them, right? Demographers like to describe them as, as almost like a, a pig, if you can imagine it, making its way through a python, okay, as the python ingests the pig. That's the kind of impact that and contortion that this demographic cohort have had on society. We're talking about a demographic that holds an awful lot of economic power. So in the UK, for example, one in five baby boomers is a millionaire. In France, for example, they own 75% of the nation's wealth. They are also disrupting what it means to be old um, right now. Many are continuing to work. Many of them are starting their own businesses. Many are not retiring in the traditional ways that even their parents did. So they've got a way to go through the Python. Right. And then I, exactly. And I think it's, it's really important that we understand that, you know, boomers are in many respects aping the social and cultural habits of their millennial kids. You know, the boomers are the fastest growing demographic on social media. They spend the largest amount of time, maybe not the most effort, in the gym. So in a sense, you've got this, this cohort who refuses to see themselves as old. Next up, we have Gen X, and that's those born from mid-1960s through to... 7980 and they do not have the force of the boomers because they didn't have the same demographic um, yield <laughs> before they were known as gen x which was a book written in the 90s um, giving them a name they didn't want they were known as the baby bust so they don't have the same economic force as the boomers they also i think that a critical generation in so many ways but they're often ignored they're like the middle child between <laughs> the boomers and the millennials right but they are absolutely pivotal socially and culturally they were the generation where women started to outnumber men at university and you saw that huge rise in the professional women and critically women delaying having children delaying getting married and having almost sometimes up to 10 to 12 years of economic independence before they then um, started a family and right now they are the squeezed generation squeezed as they are between potentially still looking after their children 
which as we know is a 30-year financial commitment, and potentially looking after their elderly parents. So they are, they are at the most sort of intense uh, moment in their lives and those care responsibilities. But I think also, I think you've said often at the moment, the CEOs of our time. Yes, exactly. So, you know, the, the, in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of who's running the show right now, it's very much Gen X. We then have the millennials and much maligned, I think much misunderstood. We are the generation that really came of age in the knowledge economy. So with millennials, you saw the mass expansion of tertiary education. And actually, the problem with that was that the value of the degree went down because more of us had one, but the price of a degree in most parts of the world went up. This is a generation who were actively disincentivized to do certain things and actively economically incentivized to do others. So what were they incentivized to do? What became cheap and universalized and democratized when they came of age? Well, travel. We all know that travel for millennials is the ultimate status update. What else? Eating out. And eating out used to be really expensive. It became really cheap. And thus are the origins of that awful kind of narrative of too much avocado and coffee means that they can't afford houses. What became expensive though as they came of age was education, healthcare, childcare, housing, at a, also at a time when wages were suppressed in the wake of the financial crisis. So you've got actually within the millennial demographic, and it's critical for, for um, when we're talking about families, is a demographic who really relied on the bank of mum and dad for help with the big things in life. But let's remember that for a long time they were associated with being young, they're no longer young. They know that they're no longer young because the majority are in their 30s, perhaps with small children, but also they're managing in the workplace, these next generation, and that's Gen Z. So millennials are those born from kind of 1981 to 1996, the generation after them, 1997 to 2010. That's the demographic who can't remember the 20th century, who, who very much are 21st century babies and have grown up obviously in the era not just of the smartphone the average gen z has had a smartphone in their pocket since they were 13 but also critically on social media and with that comparison culture with that having the world's information and the world's marketplace in their pocket it's made them very cynical it's made them um, very depressed it's made them hyper aware of what's going on in the world and they are a very distinct and unique generation from the millennials as a result so I think it's really important to make those distinctions of those four generations and let's just realise that it's not about kind of pitting each generation against each other, it's more about understanding that each of those generations have had a very distinct experience. Do you see difference between say a millennial child and, and say a, um, a gener generational ex-child? With their with their baby boomer um, parent or grandparent, and is there a just from your research, would you assume that a millennial is going to be a little bit more vocal? I would say the most vocal is possibly Gen Z, um, because they've had access to the world's information. Mm. So, for example, if you look at the stats on which generation is most likely to buy ethical goods, this in the UK, it's Gen X, not Gen Z. And what story lies behind that stat is that Gen Z are forcing their Gen X parents to buy ethical goods. So you've got a generation that have grown up with a, a real sense of their own voice, opinions, and they're a real 
knack and ability to find the information to prove their point. And do you see that on our art? Do you see it? Is it, is it mostly that, that almost the youngest generation that's, that's, that's starting to drive the conversation? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by, the, you know, by how the different generations maybe interact with each other, even not necessarily on the extremes, but you know, the ones right next yeah. to each other. I, you know, I think of myself with, uh, with my mother and it's, and it's deferential still exactly. to a degree yeah, yeah. Um, with a lot of respect. Um, yeah. But of course, at this point, I'm also helping. I'm playing a role and I'm, you know, you're parenting I, the parent. I'm helping a little yeah. bit from that perspective, right? right? So, yeah. but it's super, super, uh, you know, respectful. And, and, um, but when I look at how my kids interact with me, it's different. I mean, it's not, and it's not, it's still there, that element of respect, but it's different. So, how do you see that? I think um, what I see now for, for parents being the most challenging thing actually is to engage their children in the family business or in the family office, the, the, the family investments. So actually their challenge is that now their children have many different choices, mm. many, many different passes in life. So there is not that much as before an automatic, you know, thought that you are supposed to reproduce the scheme of how your family managed things in the past. So now they know that they can choose, they can go abroad, they can start up their own business, they can join maybe, I don't know, uh, Google or something. So now it's kind of the opposite. So the parents need to work on making it appealing for their children to join the conversation. So it's kind of the opposite, actually. That, that's fascinating. Eliza, I've heard you say, though, that since COVID, uh, that the family dynamic, or not the family dynamic, but the, the, the family as an institution has actually gained. Mm. Maybe even before that, you said it was a trend that you know, there, is that. A, there is this, this movement back to, back to moving together, parents under one roof. For a long time, you had the infantilization of millennials because of the wealth of their parents. And that wasn't just in high net wealth mm. families, it was pretty much across the board. And that was a real imbalance, okay? And it's an unnatural one, actually, um, particularly for millennials who staggered and stunted into adulthood anyway, you know, delaying mm. marriage and all those tra traditional markers, or in some ways rejecting it. But COVID, and I think just gradually, what happens in all families, you've already described it, is, you, you know, the kids start parenting the parents as the parents get older. And what COVID did was, as we know, is an age discriminant disease, which made anyone over arguably 55 suddenly feel old. An, an increasing number of millennials within families just going, I'm now having to step up mm -hmm. and even tell my mum not to leave the house. And even you know, deliver my mum's groceries in a way that probably offends her. But I'm having to do that caring role for the parents. And as soon as that happens within families, it's a natural one, which is the care reversal process that happens mm -hmm. within families. The power balance, even if it's economically unequal, the caring balance starts to, well, actually, Dad, you can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what's interesting is that COVID accelerated that. And that's only going to get ever more true and, and ever more in, in, mm -hmm. intense because, you know, boomers, whether they like it or not, are the generation that were never supposed to grow old. But I'm afraid they are. <laughs> they can't they can't deny it. Well, I think that's the interesting point or inflection point that we're at. In a way, we talked about this at the very beginning, you know, they are moving 
even though they're refusing to become old, they are, mm. in fact, you know, moving, moving, becoming older and older. And at some point in time, there is going to be a generational mm -hmm. handover. Next, so how does this handover work, and how do families effectively work with each other? Do you see a baby boomer investing, you know, their wealth, what they've earned throughout their life, in a different way mm -hmm. than uh, than say someone who's millennial? Okay, so I think one of the factors influencing how people invest is also the, the relationship they have with this pool of assets, with this money. Um, so I would say the fact that they created these assets or they inherited these assets may have an impact because they would feel more or less uh, owners and accountable for the way these, uh, these investments are made. I wouldn't say there are clear differences based on the generational court you're in. Especially, for example, we hear that now millennials are all about uh, sustainable investments. I have to say in my practice, it's not necessarily the case. I see uh, baby boomers being pioneer in uh, regenerative agriculture and, and bringing their child uh, on board. And I see as well some people still very heavily invested in, would say, um, old industries that are not that much uh, well seen nowadays. Uh, and wouldn't care to, to shift towards more uh, renewable energy. So it's not that clear cut. What I see as a difference is for the children, they are more aware of the fact that the way they invest is the vision of the world they, they subscribe to. So they're more aware of the fact that they should think of the impact of the investments uh, in, the, in the society, in the world, before, it was more of a kind of a myopic view, like, okay, I invest, I have a performance, I have a risk profile, and it's all aligned, and my banker takes care of it perfectly. Uh, that was enough. Now, investment is becoming more of a philosophical question, like what I am doing with these assets mm -hmm. and what type of impact do I have? Uh, and but also, is it, is it a family project? Is it a family project to invest together a pool of assets or not? But do you see that across generations that this... There's been a change in thinking in terms of how we invest should align with a certain purpose that we have. That's what I'm assuming. That's what it sounds like. That even the old generation, uh, you know, the baby boomers see it that way. Or is there a, is there a difference as we move uh, to the younger generations? Actually, it's not uh, either or question because what is fascinating with with families is that they all influence each other all the time. So it's kind of a dance. And they have to co-design everything they do together. And sometimes maybe the, the, the older generation has, has more influence on the decision. But sometimes if they want to have the children being on board and engaged, they need to listen to their expectation and their desires, right? So um, I would say it's kind of a, a collective uh, endeavor to make sure that what the family does as a unity makes sense. You cannot agree on anything, but it's like in a country, you will have people of very different opinions and still con countries are run because there are some rules of the game uh, where everybody abides by and it goes forwards. If we take it away from the family for a moment and just say in the workplace, generations work with each other and there's already issues there mm. taking away the family dynamic. Can you describe just very briefly those? And then I'm going to ask you, Honora, to cover you know, what happens when you add the element of family and the element of, mm. um, of affluence or wealth. So in the workplace, we are seeing a intergenerational conflict of values, methods, managerial styles, expectations, place of work in one's life. And it's becoming ever more in a problem because of hybrid working and changing cultural shifts. So if you have those different 
understandings of it's uh, you know how you work essentially if you're not colliding as much face to face in the office those confusions just exacerbate and become ever more problematic and corrosive and you do have a generation coming into the workforce now i mean and in actual fact they've been in the workforce for rather a long time the eldest gen z is 26 um, but their first experience of work invariably or a significant chunk of their experience of work was during the covid lockdown where you know they were staring at a green dot for potentially eight to 12 hours a day and not really expanding their networks, their learning, their, their belonging, their loyalty, their understanding of the culture of the organization. So you have a real problem, I would say, with that generation who also are questioning, quite rightly, how things have been done before. And our you know, work is quite often about, can I see myself here in five years time? Well, let's look at the people that are five years older than me. Oh my goodness, I don't want to be them. So in many respects, they're looking at millennials who grew up and naturalized that digitalization and culture of overwork and burnout, and also didn't really get the benefits that the older generations did from, from that commitment to work. I'm just saying, I don't want to work like that. I want a greater work-life balance. COVID gave us all space time and autonomy over ourselves in a way that actually we don't want to let go of and i think that that generation who have grown up as digital natives and are now digitally exhausted are quite rightly questioning it and so there's a cultural jarring as well of a generation are really questioning the workplace and how we've worked but if i if i summarize that one of the main differences generationally that you're describing in the workplace is that it's just a different attitude towards work in general Baby boomers saying, this is my existence, this is what I do, and, and I think the, the further you move down, it's more, work is a part of my life, but it is not the only part of my mm -hmm. life. Let's, let's add that family dynamic, and, and, and Onara, maybe you can describe you know, a little bit, what are the most common issues or the most common questions that you uh, encounter? Yeah, so to, to just complement on what Eliza, Eliza was saying before, I think one of the main difference between the workplace or the family setting is that you cannot escape your family. <laughs> you can, you <laughs> can <got> quit, <laughs> you can leave a toxic manager, that's something that you can quite easily do. But in the, the realm of families, you have relationship with your father, mother, siblings, and it will always be the case. I think in a family setting, you, you, you see most often than not that the problem is that if the, the family members are not able to kind of understand, I, I loved you talked about empathy before, and I think actually mm -hmm. in my practice, it's really what we try to factor, is really how to uh, understand that you may have different experience in life, you may have different skills. And if you think of the project being a common one, uh, the idea is to try to see how you have different perspectives uh, in, the, in the whole puzzle and each family member can bring something in. This is something that we discuss with families because there are some traditional preconceptions that one of the children, for example, is supposed to become you know, the new leader. So you kind of uh, try to invest all you can on this particular child, thinking he will be the one or she will be the one. When it comes to families, in, in many respects, it, it and family wealth and how that's spent and invested and things, it really does 
reflect the changing trends and traditions and priorities of society, whether we're talking about the rise of hyper-individualism um, or ESG or, or you know, various, various trends. And I think that's trying to navigate that in a, in a way that doesn't, that encourages closer relationships rather than a breakdown of relationships <laughs> is incredible. What advice would you give? So I work a lot with high net wealth families, helping the individual families and the wealth managers um, and advisors generate that empathy and understanding by giving them the context and fleshing out some of the background as to why their child or parent is acting in that particular way or values that particular thing or thinks that and, and makes that decision. And because I'm coming at it from not a kind of family therapist perspective, but a historian who understands contemporary values, I, I'm rationalising it, which whether you're young or old, what I'm seeking to do is help you understand that we're all a product of one's time. And these are the factors that influence your decision making or your family's decision making. And quite often I find that if I do do that with a family, they're like, ah, okay, that's the starting point for empathy is okay. And, and that understanding is the first point and creates that entry point into greater mm. empathy. And okay, right, now I need to understand you and where you're coming from, but mm -hmm. you also need to listen to me and where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. And then we can start making decisions. And quite often, just to, just to finish up, is you have an idealist young person and a realist older person. <laughs> and it's trying to find a middle ground mm. as well. And I think that's, you're, you're challenging the, the realism that comes with age and experience and, and, and uh, you know, storm, you know, weathering lots of storms in life and the idealism of youth. And actually, life is about both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You need both. Mm. It's fascinating what you describe because I think in effect what you're saying is that you're, you're teaching one or the other generation that it's not that person. It's mm. not that individual who is just that way and has that view and has a counter view to mm. yours and you must convince them the otherwise. But no, it's actually that cohort of people just, it just thinks a little bit differently and you have to understand. I think you said somewhere that uh, you know, the, the failure to understand each other mm. lies more or less at the heart of every intergenerational issue. And I think, I think, I think in an age where actually age is a great segmentation, you know, we're segmented in education, in, in work, in society, in politics, you know, we're, we're actually not very good at intergenerational engagement. We're much better 40 years ago, you know, so I think it, it's, it's also critically, as well as understanding, it's also about moral judgment. It's not, I did this and that was best and I know best and what you're doing is wrong and not as good as what I think you should be doing, it's actually creating an equal, by, by contextualizing it in time, you're actually going, it's not about one being better than the other, it's actually, you're just acting in a way that your generational cohort typically does, <laughs> which is a good leveler. So creating understanding, one really important part, but Honora, you, I think have to follow, um, uh, you know, also a, a specific process in a way. I think also that's probably expected from the families that you work with. That you're not just sitting down and saying, "Well, you all have to understand each other more and and, and give some context." But uh, can you describe that process and maybe describe a successful situation where where mm -hmm. you helped it make work? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So the first step, which is very important and where families need external help, is to really make sure that we understand each of the family members' perspective. So the first part is very much a discovery process, which is, which is so interesting. So we would have uh, one-to-one interviews with each of the different family members uh, to listen to their own uh, modelization, I would say, of what their family is about, uh, what is their view on what the family was should be used for, like the question we were referring to before, how they would describe their relationships right now, how are they communicating. So it's kind of an anthropologist view mm. of how the family is actually an entity that is functioning right now. So the first step is really discovery, mapping what the family uh, is about at this particular point of time. In this step, I have to say that there are always big surprises when then we gather all the information and we share back with the whole family. They are always surprised about what is the kind of the, the state of the situation, which is, they know each other, right? They're part of the same family. But the fact that we look at it from an external point of view uh, makes them able to realize certain things. So once they have this new kind of vision of the family, we try to help them design their uh, change agenda. So, okay, we understand where we are, but where should we want to go together or not? Because you may also have some elements where you need to have individual projects as well as common projects. And once we design this agenda change with them, we of course help them to put kind of a roadmap in place so that they're able to implement and we keep them accountable because what is often difficult is at the beginning, they're very motivated to start working together in a different way, but it's by practice that they get good at it. So we need to encourage them and say, continue, continue, you will get there. But it's normal that the first family council meeting is not perfect. Practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the importance of two things? One is purpose. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they are aligned as a group generally on what they want to achieve. And then also flexibility and individualism. Mm -hmm. How do you marry both? Mm -hmm. So first, they're not necessarily most of the time aligned on the purpose. This is something I have to say. Well, it's the lowest common denominator. Because it's not easy to be clear about your own purpose for anybody in life. I mean, because it may change, it may evolve, you may have contradictory purposes. <laughs> so it's, not, it's, it's a big question. It's, it's not that easy. And to give you an example, one family we are currently uh, working with, um, part of the family is very attached to the legacy of the family business. So they want in their purpose to have this element of we want to continue not necessarily with the same line of business, but in the same industry. And other parts of the family is saying, no, but it's restrictive. We, we want to see, we want to explore all the opportunities we have to make the, the family business evolve going forward. Mm -hmm. So this is a big discussion because for part of the family, if you don't follow the legacy, you're not loyal to, to the, the previous generation. And for another part of the family, they're more opportunistic in a way. They say, yes, yes, we, we, we are very happy about how the family business functioned until now, but we need to stay open-minded because if our purpose is too restricted, it may rob us from very good opportunities. So big discussions around the purpose, um, especially if there is a family business, because some families think that their identity is actually very much attached to it. But let's say you find a common purpose, right? The yeah. common purpose yeah. could be just to let's sustain what we have mm -hmm. and, um, and let's try to make sure that everyone can, you know, can live in a good yeah. way and, and yeah. respects each other, right? What role does, does flexibility play yes. in having, having some freedom? 
it's extremely important uh, because if the system is too rigid, uh, it will not be able to sustain over time. As we say, change is the only constant. So what I see working is setups where families have a common project, a common activity, a common business or pool of assets. And there they need to find, as you said, the com most, most little denominator so that they align on that. And they also need to be able to express their own identity and their own values through individual projects, because as Eliza rightly said, they may have very different attitudes. So we try to always encourage family to have a balance between what is shared, where you have common rules of the game, and keep some lev level of flexibility, freedom, where you can have, for example, one pool of, your, of the assets that you can invest in uh, very different industries. Like we, we saw young people wanting to try uh, Bitcoin, Go, invest, it's, now it's your money, you do what you like, but we don't want as a family to take this risk. Eliza, let me, let me give the last word to you. Is there anything from a, also from your experience in terms of advising families that uh, we haven't covered, where you would say, well, there's one more important thing to keep in mind? No, um, no. <laughs> I think there's one thing that I think is really critical here is, is that we've got this strange dichotomy in society. We have an aging population but a youth-obsessed culture. And we tend to pander to, this is what you know Gen Z are thinking, oh my goodness. And actually they don't have a lot of economic power to execute the, 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 the things they believe in. And it's so heavily weighted to the older generations. Now, in the next 10 to 15, 20 years, you're going to see that massive transference of wealth. And that's only one part of the story. Everyone talks about the great wealth transfer, but actually it's the great care transfer as well. And the, the problems that I see within families, and I imagine in high net wealth right the way down, is, is that lots is talked about money, less is talked about in terms of care. Now that may be done by others um, or done by mostly women, but I think so much of the conversations around wealth is also about relinquishing that power and actually being ever more needy um, and reliant on the younger members within family. And that puts an awful lot of pressure on emotionally and potentially even physically on, on the, the particularly the millennial cohort. So everyone talks about the aging society like it's an old people's problem. Actually, and arguably, it's a young people's problem. And actually one of the things and ways that you can keep families together or pull them apart is when you have that, that care needing to be delivered and who does that and how that's administered and also what a dignified death looks like and the conversations that happen after that, I think really needs to be brought into the conversation around wealth transfer. Fascinating point, and I think a really nice point to end on that it's, it's really not just about the transfer of assets, but it's this idea of how do I make sure, because we all assume, you know, we're going to live very healthily and then one day it's going to come to an end. And that, of course, in 99% of the cases is not the case. Mm. And so, and, and what you described is an issue in every single family. Mm. And so I think taking that into account is, is likely just as important and certainly something I take away from this conversation. Thank you very much. This episode of Founding Conversations starred Dr. Eliza Philby and Honora Ducatillo with Hubertus Corps as the host. 
The show is a collaboration between Pictet, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, and the How To Academy, London's leading public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Clara Bertrand, and Vasily Christodoulou. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>